Well, what's up? What's up, Resonate? It's awesome to see all of you. Yes, every single one. Hey, if you are uh, joining us online, hey, welcome. And we love you, Hayward. So glad that you're joining us. We're one church in multiple locations. Hey, we're going to start a little bit differently as we close out our For the One series. We're going to do communion first. And so if you have one of these, uh, please get one out right now. If you don't, our ushers are going through all of our campuses um, online. Here's your time where uh, you could go to your refrigerator and grab that stale bread and the juice box that you have and grab that out. And uh, we're going to worship through communion first. Um, the reason why we're doing this is because Jesus was in his upper room. He gathered his friends. It was a, quite a common place in which he would often retreat and, and pray and to host. And here he told all of his dearest friends on earth um, that we're going to have a Passover supper. Well, it's called the um, Lord's Supper because um, Paul calls it that in 1 Corinthians 11. But Jesus calls it the Last Supper because it was the last meal on earth that he would have. And what his disciples thought was a Passover meal where they commemorated the time and when uh, the Israelites were under the oppression of Egypt and they were uh, slaves, and yet the Lord brought grace and the angel of the Lord was going to pass by and the way they were going to be liberated, if they were to slain a, a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost, then the angel of death will uh, pass over that house and only judge those who did not have an atonement blood on their door. And so they were celebrating this meal, um, but something was different because uh, they had the bread and they had the wine, but where was the lamb? They didn't have the lamb. Jesus, what are we gonna eat? We're on a paleo diet. Like, wh what are we gonna eat? And he said, well, you're going to eat of me. See, because the lamb was not on the table because he was at the table. He was the feast. So he brought unleavened bread out. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Now, I want to tell you where Catholics get it wrong. Catholics will look at the bread and say, this is literally and physically Jesus' body you know, that we're eating. And they call it transubstantiation. It's a, it's a doctrine that they believe that Protestants don't. And, and I, I believe they got it wrong because, um, you know, Jesus was holding bread saying, this is my body. And so Jesus is using that as a symbol. He's not saying, look at me. I'm here too. I'm there too. No, he, he said, this is a symbol, you know, eat of my body. So we're doing it in remembrance of him. But, you know, I think Protestants have gotten it wrong too. In that, I think sometimes we take this very flippantly. I think we take this just like too relaxed. And, and so I, I went to a Catholic funeral once and I saw them uh, do this, take communion, and they were so reverent over it. They were so broken over it. And maybe they believe that because this is the real physical body of Jesus. And though we know it's not, could we do this? Could we hold this with two hands today? Would you just hold it in your hand? And just place yourself at the bottom of the cross 
when Jesus' dead body was taken down. And would you imagine with me that you had the privilege to hold him in his arms, his broken body? How would you hold him? You're Lord, your master that you saw crucified on the cross for your sins and for the sins of the world. Will you have that affection over this glorious element that he gives the church a gift to remember the gospel through his body and through his blood? So would you take out this bread that was broken for you and he says, eat it in remembrance of me. Will you take it? And go ahead and open the other side where this is a symbol of his blood, a new covenant that was given to us. So will you drink it in remembrance of him? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I, for now, couldn't be more grateful for what you have done for me. You are my treasure. There's nothing greater. Thank you for reminding me of that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Passover meal was done. All the disciples left. And Jesus was alone in the upper room. He was alone with his father. His stomach was half full. His heart started to get really lonely because he knew the day would come after he was betrayed. He knew that the day would come when he would die on the cross. And so for his last remaining moment in the upper room, he gets on his knees and he prays to the father. We find this in John 17. It's a chapter called the High Priestly Prayer of Christ. It is the longest discourse ever written in all of Jesus' dialogue to God. And it is a specific prayer prayed for us, all of us. He prays for his disciples and he prays for the church. He prays for Christians. And what I want you to know, and the reason why it's called the high priestly prayer is twofold. Jesus is becoming the high priest in that the high priest back then in the temple would prepare the sacrificial offering for the atonement of sin. And here he is doing it, knowing that there's only a day or so in which he is preparing himself as the ultimate offering for the atonement of all of our sins. But he's also preparing as a priest his heart to advocate for the people of God. You see, the prophets spoke on behalf of God, advocating for God to the people, and the priests would advocate for the people, call out mercy to God, and God, Jesus here is calling out as a great priest, the high priest, as the perfect priest he is, he is petitioning to his father for us. He's praying for us, and he's praying this particular prayer. And his prayer is this, ready? He's praying, please help my people become missionaries. That's what he's praying. Now, we're about to see that. And the high priestly prayer is perhaps the most missional section of all of Scripture. And I hope to show that 
to you. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Would you please turn to John chapter 17? Uh, John chapter 17. And we're going to read from verse 13 through 19. And, and um, if you are able in all of our campuses, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And I'll pray once again that the Holy Spirit preach a better sermon than the one that you're about to hear from me. John 17, verses 13 through 19, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus praying to his father, he says, but now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. They are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. That is the word of the Lord for this great Sunday. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you please have a seat? When you look at John 17, you'll see a particular feature that you won't see in any part of Scripture. You will see a bunch of pronouns, pronouns of Jesus saying, you, Father, you, me or I, and they or them. He says, you, 40 times. He says, me or I, 52 times. He say them, referring to us, 38 times. And the reason why he's doing this is so much of the reason why God sent his son Jesus into the world to provide the salvation, to be missional, to be sent into the world. Now Jesus is praying, will you take that same heart and connect it to our, my people? So, so much of the heart of God is lived out through Jesus and the heart of Jesus is going to be lived out through us. You, I, and they. And so what we're going to see just in a moment is everything that God wants of this world was done through Jesus, and everything that he wants to accomplish now is going to be done through us. And so we're going to learn three truths about the mission of God from this prayer that Jesus prays to his Father. If you're taking notes, here's the first. The mission always results in joyful satisfaction, that you and I will be joyful and satisfied when we're on mission. And the way you know that you are on mission in particular in life is that you have satisfaction. You have joy. And perhaps if you're sitting here today or you're in one of our campuses and you feel unsatisfied, maybe perhaps you're not on mission. Would you look at verse 13? Jesus starts, but now, Father, I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Say joy. Joy. One more time. Say joy. Joy Joy is something that God wants of us from mission. As we are sent, this is what he's saying. As I've had this great joy, I want this joy to be found in my people. This is the heart of Jesus praying 
to God, that I want them to experience the same thing. And the reality why this sentness is required is because you and I have chosen our own path. You and I have chosen to receive the glory that is only due to God in his name, but we took it for ourselves. There's a throne in our hearts that only he is to be sat in, and yet we have sat in instead. And therefore, because we put ourselves in God's place, God now has to put himself in our place, because we, have, we took upon ourselves the thing that only God deserves, now God has to take upon himself only the things that we deserve. And therefore, Jesus here goes to the cross and dies for us. Now, that is a rather, rather grim picture, and yet there's this mysterious joy in this prayer because as the father says to his son, son, I need you to go, and I need to die for you to go be crucified for your people, Jesus reveals what is in his heart. Because in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, so at the prospect of his mission, Jesus himself had this incredible satisfaction and joy. He was as ugly as the cross was. He was looking to go and die for us because you and I were in his mind. You see, mission begets joy. Mission begets satisfaction. And now Jesus wants that satis same satisfaction in us. So in some sense, our current lack of joy, if you are here today saying there's something more, I know God has something more. I'm not satisfied in all my gadgets. I'm not satisfied in all the vacations that I'm going to. I'm just not satisfied. Perhaps this is the reason why you're here today. This is the reason why you are hearing this section of scripture, that God wants you to have joy and it only comes through mission and that you're not on mission. And I know that our satisfaction and mission is absolutely connected because think about children. When you ask a seven-year-old, hey, what do you want to become when you grow up? There's not a single child that is seven years old that said, when I grow up, I want to work in an office pushing numbers. Not one, right? Instead, what do they say? They say, well, I want to be a police officer, a firefighter, a doctor. I want to be a teacher. Why? Because these are noble jobs. Not that pushing numbers is not a noble one. I know you do it great. But, but they want to be people that actually help other people. Why? Why is it this? Why is this innate in them? Because I think you, you and I, we're all designed. We're made for mission. We're made for a purpose that is outside of ourselves. But when we make ourselves the main deal, and we live in a culture where we continue to press in over and over and over again, that world, this life is all about personal fulfillment. It's all about individual happiness. But here's the irony. Exaggerating our significance actually is a key to losing our significance. See, so, so for many of us, this is our story. We bought into the meet my needs first culture. And by doing so, we thought we were gaining freedom, but we lost freedom. We lost freedom because freedom always comes from our purpose. Freedom always comes from our design. And God has designed us for mission. God has designed us to do work outside of ourselves, not for us. You and I are designed to be on mission. It's like the freedom that 
fish have in living in purpose in water. You think fish have actually freedom outside of water? That might seem like a particular uh, freedom, but it's actually freedom to die. And in the same way, when we are all about ourselves, we're not created for that. And so there's something that die in us. Now, this week, um, I'm not sure if you're, if you're a tennis fan. I'm a tennis fan. I'm a sports fan. And uh, we had the U.S. Open, and uh, Novak Djokovic won the U.S. I mean U.S. Open, his 24th Grand Slam. He's the best male tennis champion in the world, and he's an amazing tennis player. And at the spotlight, when all the light was on him, all the attention of the world was on him, he actually put on a T-shirt of Kobe Bryant, the Black Mamba. And as he did that, he got interviewed and said, "I put this shirt on because." He and his life has inspired me. Now, if I were to put on a shirt of somebody's, it would be of Adoniram Judson. You know who that is? Adoniram Judson, right? He was a missionary in the 1700s. He's one of the first American missionaries, and he took the gospel that he knew and decided to travel on a ship. To go into a gospel-less world, a nation called Burma, he went there. But before he went,、um, he was a young man in his twenties, and he met a gal named Anne Hazeltine and fell in love. And so, before he wanted to go on this mission, he wanted to take Anne and get married. And so, the first thing he did was he wrote an honorable letter for the hand of his da- her daughter. He asked his future father-in-law, and he wrote a letter. And I just want to read it to you because it's incredibly inspiring. In fact, when I feel a little low, I read something like this, and I just want to run through a wall. And and so I'm just going to read this to you, and I hope you could take it in. So the context is he's asking for her hand in marriage, writing to Anne's father, and this is what he says: I have now to ask whether you can consent to be part. Uh, with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land, and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this, for the same of him, who left his heavenly home, and died for her and for you, for the sake of the perishing, immoral souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this and hope soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory, with the crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise, which shall resound to her Savior from the many Burmese safe through her means? From eternal woe and despair, man, that was a letter written to win the daughter over. <laughs> Now, could you imagine this letter being written today? He was 22. Clearly, this is not written by a millennial, <laughs> right? Right, a Gen Zer. We don't write like this. I mean, Gen Xers. No, nobody writes like this today. This feels so foreign to us. You know why? Because it is. But this is the kind of faith in which American Christianity started, and the gospel went out in this world. And I believe God wants to reclaim it today for this generation. 
I believe God wants to take a, give us a fresh take as to say, this is the kind of cost, this is the kind of spirit, this is the kind of inspiration that you and I need in order to be living on mission for his glory so that you may be satisfied, that you might have joy. Here's the second thing. Mission not only gives you this joyful satisfaction, but the mission requires sanctification. It requires sanctification. Now, consider, now we're going to do a short Bible study here. Consider this, okay? Verses 17 through 19. Okay, I want you to see how they're all related to each other. Okay? Verse 17. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now skip down to verse 19. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So these two verses, verse 17 and 19, is talking about sanctification. It's talking about holiness, that how Jesus was holy, how he wants us to be holy. Now, it seems like it's a holy sandwich, except let's look at the the meat. Verse 18, it says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, wait a minute. The buns sanctify them. I'm consecrated. I'm sanctified. And then in the middle, it says, I'm sending them. As you sent me, I'm sending them. Here's the question. Is this a passage talking about sanctification or is it talking about mission? What is it? And the answer is both. It's both. But they're incredibly stitched and related Because what God is saying here to us is that mission will require our sanctification. See, mission will require your holiness. That we should become holy not just for God, but also for the world. This is what God is saying. And this is really, really important. Now, Jesus here is not saying, I consecrate myself or I separate myself or I I pursue holiness not so that I could be more holy because no, Jesus is perfectly holy. Uh, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says he was a lamb without blemish, so he was perfectly holy. So he's not saying sanctification in the way of just morality or being more pure because Jesus is perfectly pure. What is he talking about then? What Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about consecration in the sense of being set apart, being set apart, being different, having a goal, okay, set apart for a mission at hand. This is what he's talking about, just like an Olympic athlete who wants to win the gold medal so desperately that she consecrates herself. She sanctifies herself from junk food. She sanctifies herself from late night partying. She sanctifies herself from Friday drinking. None of those things are necessarily bad, but she separates herself and consecrates herself. Why? For the prize and the mission at hand. What is the mission? A gold medal. I want the gold medal. And Jesus is saying here, I have sanctified myself for the mission. And God, as I send our people, my disciples into the world, please sanctify them. Keep them separated. Keep them unique. Keep them holy. So our holiness, our godliness, our choices of being humble, generous, merciful, gracious, holding on to the truth, all these qualities that is holiness, it's not just to please God, but it's also to show the world. 
The problem is many of us, truth be told, as much as we want to relate to the world, we kind of became like the world. And in the process, we've lost our saltiness. Christians have lost saltiness in this culture. So much so because we want to relate to our friends. We want to be cool. We wanted to be in the inside and we got in. And now we're no different than the world. In fact, many of our friends, non-Christian friends, family members know that we're Christians. And yet, they don't want to be Christians. Why? Because there's nothing that you live, there's nothing that you hold on to that is absolutely convicting. There's nothing that compels them to live like you. Because you and I are so bland and unholy. Maybe perhaps in the pursuit of us wanting to become so much like them, going into their lives, we became just like them. And that we must gain our saltiness back. That we must be the salt of the world. See, now, I, I, I want us to see, this is, this is let's, let's look at this um, text again, because Benjamin Franklin, he actually wasn't a Christian, but he had a really good friend who was a Christian. Uh, his, his name was um, George Whitfield. He was a great evangelist. George Whitfield um, loved Jesus so much, and, and he came and he started an orphanage even in Georgia. And Benjamin Franklin, not being a Christian, but being a good friend of a Christian himself, was so compelled by his life so compelled by his holiness that he ended up funding most of all of George Whitfield's ministry, his public preaching ministry, and his orphanage. And in fact, when they interviewed him, and actually there's a book called, I think, The Printer and the Preacher, because Benjamin Franklin made the printing machines, and that's how he got rich. Um, Benjamin Franklin said this of George Whitfield. He said, I could never quite buy this Christianity but I have a tremendous respect for it. I think we ought to have churches everywhere. Isn't that amazing? Why? Because though a person may not convert to Christianity, you can never dismiss the faith entirely if you actually met a set-apart person. And the question is, are you set apart? Now, let's again consider Christ's prayer for us again. And I think you'll read it differently. Verse 17 so Christ prays to his father and says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you send me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now do you see why Christ prayed for us to be sanctified? You see, you see, you're one that you're trying to reach. They don't need to hear one of my sermons. They probably need more of your holiness. They don't need an apologetic book they probably need your set-apartness. They don't need to see and witness another miracle. What they probably need to see more is your consecrated life. You see, and so if this is true, and if mission requires our sanctification and our holiness, I think one of the greatest prayers or even a question we could ask today, all of us together in all of our campuses is this, God, how could I be more holy? How could I be more holy? What is the choice that I can make that I might be even more sanctified for your glory and for the world?
What does that look like? You see, mission requires sanctification. But here's the last point. The mission requires sending. Yes, we get great joyful satisfaction from it. Yes, it requires our sanctification, but it actually requires also us going. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Who is them? Jesus is saying, that's the church. That's us. And if you're a person who loves Christ and the gospel, could I just tell you, you cannot divorce what Jesus says here about us and to just choose, try to choose the things that we want to believe in the Bible and ignore the things that we don't want to obey in the Bible. You know, Christians are so strange. You know, we say, Jesus, your word is truth. You are our authority. And when he speaks, we're like, no thanks. I think that's just rather strange. I understand that, that, that we have sin and we have our selfishness and all that. But to plainly ignore it? Well, let me dial it up just a little bit further. Okay, look at verse 15. Look at what he prays to God. He prays to his father. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Did you hear that? He's saying, Father, please don't take them out of this evil area, but please don't let them be affected by evil, is what he says. This is crazy. And here's where I see a great rub in what we see, what we learn, and what we choose to be blind to. And here's another place where I think we pick and choose verses and we, we obey certain things like, oh, we obey, we love the fact that he's love, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's giving, he's generous. And yet when, when God tells us, you must stay in the arena of evil, we're like, no thanks. You know, and this is what I call trail mix theology. You and I have trail mix theology. You know how trail mixes work. You get that bag from Costco, and you see the M&Ms, see the little chocolates in there, dry fruit, the cashews, which is slightly juicier and nuttier than the almonds, and the dreaded raisins. And somehow you reach over, and you grab a whole handful, but yet somehow you have the art of sifting you know? And somehow the only things that drop are the raisins. And I know this because at the end of the, every bag of a trail mix, there are a bunch of raisins, right? It's supposed to be all mixed up, but you only pick out the good stuff. And God forbid, as you're picking it up and raking it up, you drop an M&M. You know what you do? You leave the 99 and go after that one. I know you do that, right? Yeah, yeah, you do that. You feel me? And we grab that, and then we eat it. At the end of the bag, we always have the raisins. And listen, Christians, why do we do this with the Bible? Because you'll rake and you'll take what is good to you, and you'll leave the rest of the stuff. And here is one of these verses where we will constantly choose to disobey and ignore. How do I know that? Because the prevailing conversation I hear from Christians in the Bay is this. Oh, this Bay is so secular. There's so much evil. Oh, I hate the taxes. I hate the traffic. I hate the people that are moving. Oh, it's changed so much. You know, I hate the governor. You know, I hate the politics. I hate everything. I can't wait to move. Do you know who talks like that? Consumers. Consumers. You know who never talks like that? Missionaries. 
Missionaries don't talk like that. You know how I know? I, I went to Vietnam last year and met a bunch of missionaries. Not a single one of them said, I'm here in Vietnam because this communist regime has made it so easy to do ministry here. Not one. They're there because the gospel isn't. And Christians, could I just ask that we would repent from our selfishness to see this land as only consumeristic, to say, oh, gas is expensive here. I want to go to, or you know what? The values here are all going to pots. You know what? If you leave there, who's going to instill those values? God says, Jesus says, please, Father, keep them in the evil space, in the evil land, but please protect them from the evil one. This is mission. Now, I want to be careful not to vilify people's motives, for some of our dearest friends have moved from here, and some for really legit reasons, you know, some for really godly reasons. But I would say majority of the people that have moved, that have gone Christian, has come from a consumer mindset, which basically asks this question, where could I go to get most bang for the buck, you know? Now, this is an awesome mindset to have when you go to Target or Walmart, okay? It is, but what is viewed as a healthy stewardship in the area of commerce is absolutely destructive in the arena of missions. You see, missions cost. It's going to cost us. It's going to cost, it's going to take our sanctification, but it's going to take us sending and entering in. And so could you just simply consider the difference between a consumer versus a missionary? Let me show you. A consumer says, I can experience God by myself. Instead, uh, you know what, by the way, people who say I could experience God by myself, it's true, you can. And it sounds like a great American. You could be a great American by yourself. You just can't be a great Christian. Because Christians say this instead, a missionary says, I can experience more of God through others. You know, of course you can know God individually, but God is designed to show himself through a community. In fact, most of the commandments in the New Testament are written in the plural, meaning it's for us, not just you. It's more like third person, y'all. If we're in the South, you know, you all. It's for us together. Secondly, a consumer also says, I will let my feelings be my guide. You know, I'll do whatever I want to do. If I want to feel, if I feel like coming to church, I will. If I don't, I won't. I'll join group if I want to. If I, if I don't, I won't. It's the mindset. Whereas missionary says, I will let the scriptures be my guide. You know, because I'm not in charge. <laughs> you know, think about this. If God made you the center of the universe, why should I worship that God? Essentially, I'm worshiping you. Like, what a weak God that is. The only God that is worthy of exaltation is him and him alone. Amen? Yeah. And if that's true, if that's true, listen, then he gets to say whatever he wants. And we obey. And that's why scripture is our guide. It is our authority. So a missionary says, I submit to Jesus and do whatever he wants me to do. See, comfort is not my true north. It's the word of God. Third, a consumer says, I'm committed as long as my needs are met. And the missionary says, I serve others because it's not about me. 
It really isn't about me. Lastly, consumer says, I go to church. And the missionary says, I am the church. I am the church. Now listen, I want to land the plane here. Now God's desire for the church is for all of us to move from a consumer to a missionary. And could I just clarify here for a moment? If you find yourself as a non-believer here in this space or in Hayward or an online campus, if you're a non-believer, please feel free to consume. Please feel free to drink. Please feel free to take. Please feel free to just sit and to receive. But if you are a Christian today, if you are a believer of Jesus Christ, and if you say that I have submitted my life to Jesus and he is my authority, then there are only two buckets to which we are one of. We are categorically either a consumer or a missionary, and there's no in-between. There's no in-between. You're either a consumer or a missionary. Maybe you are a missionary that's drinking milk, but what you need to know is a missionary is sent. A missionary says, it's not about me. A missionary doesn't always just consume. And what I love, what Ed Stesser says is this. He says, it isn't that God has a mission for his church. You see, mission is not a program in the church. Instead, he says, it's that God has a church for his mission. Do you see the nuance there? You see, God wants to redeem the world, and he's using the church as an instrument. The only reason why Resonate Church exists, the only reason why any church exists is because God has a mission for it. So mission is not something that we do on the side. It's not just the main thing. Could I just share with you? It's the only thing. It's the only thing. This is why you and I, I believe, are here. Now, some of you are wondering, why is my life so joyless? Why is my life so purposeless? Do you know why? Because I think many of us have been living as a consumer. And we need to wake up and make a decision today to say, that's not my design, Lord. You've designed me to be a missionary. And your ambitions of a comfortable life, filled with vacations and little newer gadgets, have not been satisfying. You know, you remember the day when you thought, man, if I get an iPhone, I'm going to be so satisfied. And my life is going to be fulfilled. And then iPhone 2 comes out. You're like, dang it. Then you get that. The iPhone 4 comes out. 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Now 15 coming out. I don't know which one. But you're like, I must have it. And we're on the same chase. We're just as dissatisfied. And we think one more vacation is going to do it. We think one more gadget is going to do it. It ain't going to do it. And what C.S. Lewis would say, for those of us who are living like that, he would say, we're like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is, what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. You see, he's, he goes on to say, we're far too easily pleased. We choose the little things when God is inviting us to a joyful satisfaction that is only found in him and through his mission. See, you and I are made for more than that. And I love this service in particular because I didn't say this in any other service, but you know what I've been praying recently? I've been praying for our young people, our young disciples, from children all the way to students and college-age students. And if you haven't noticed, 
you know, our young people are awesome. And you know what? They're not just awesome. They're men and women of God. And they're doing things that we as adults refuse. There's so many things that we could learn from these people. I, I certainly learn from them. And what I want to tell you, even here right now, is God has made you into a missionary, not just a churchgoer. I want you to know that deeply. And you are some of the best missionaries that we have in our church, in our society. And we believe that you are making a difference now and you will make a difference later. I hope we could help you. Amen? Amen. Listen. You're like, but Ryan, you know, the disciples, they acted like that because they were disciples. You know, they had Jesus by their side. Uh, today, we don't, we don't have Jesus. If Jesus was on, by our side, then we would do some radical things. Man, we would just go after it, right? Because Jesus is on our side. He's our big brother. He has all the miracles in his hands. Man, I am afraid of anything if Jesus is by our side. But Jesus is gone. And at least the disciples had them, and we don't. And that's why we're weak missionaries. Well, can I just remind you? Jesus also left the disciples too. Remember when Jesus said, I'm going to go? And he starts going, and he just descends into the skies, into the cloud, and he disappears. Remember what the disciples said? It's not in the Bible, but this is what they said, I promise you. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> gonna, if I ever, ever write a Bible, I'm not, but, you know, I would include that. The no, no, no part, because that's exactly what they said. No, 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 they're gone. But what does Jesus say? Oh, all of a sudden, the disciples remember John 14. In John 14, Jesus says, it's the advantage that I leave you. Because if I leave you, if I leave you, listen, uh, um, something radical is going to happen. Greater work you will do because I'm going to the Father. What does that mean? Jesus says, if I stay here, we could only just go one location at a time. So if we go to Samaria, we're only in Samaria. If we go to Judea, we're only in Judea. But guess what? If I go, I will give you the Holy Spirit to live in you. And when you do that, then no longer are you contained in Jerusalem because when some of you are in Jerusalem, some of you and I will be in Samaria and some of you at the same time will be in Judea and all of the world. So listen, this is what I need you to know. When the Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit came into us, this is what I want you to know, Christians of today in this generation. Jesus in us is better than Jesus with us. I'm going to hold this position until like a few, few more of you get it, all right? <laughs> yeah, listen, this is what it means. Jesus in you is far better than Jesus just being with us physically because what ends up happening is when Jesus is in you and there are millions and millions of Christians all over the world, this is how the greater works happen. Jesus is in you. Think about this. Could you think about this, Christians? The almighty God. The almighty God, the all-powerful one that gave you the power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, it's in you, it's in me. The same power that raised you from the dead. You see, here's the thing. We so minimize what God has done in our lives. Some, some of you think you're Christians because your parents are Christians. Some of you think you're Christians because, you know, because... You went to Sunday school. Are you kidding me? You're only a Christian because the Holy Spirit did a miracle in you. 
illuminated your eyes to see something that you couldn't see. We were all once blind, but now we could see. We always didn't see. And that power is in us right now. And the same power that raised you from the dead, the same power is going to be activated and embolden you to the work of mission. He won't leave us. He says, all authority has been given unto me, and I will be with you to the end of the age. My power is with you. And so we don't have to be scared. In fact, we'll do greater works because the Spirit is in us, not just with us. And can I just tell you right now, every single person matters here, every single one. If you're hearing me today, I believe you're here only because God wants to talk to you. I really believe that. You know, all this weekend, I was just praying one thing. I said, Lord, could, could they not see me and just only see you? Could they just see you talking to them? Every single one of you matters. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, I'm not a missionary. I'm just a consumer. I'm okay. Well, God wants to talk to you. You know, in John chapter 12, no, John chapter 17, actually in this chapter, verse 12, it says, Jesus says, you know, um, while I was with them, I, I guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except Judas. That's what Jesus says. And a few, few more chapters later in Acts chapter 1, you know what they did? They replaced Judas, remember? They're like, well, the 12 went down to 11. Why did they so quickly replace one more? Because one more matters. Every single one matters. Isn't that the point of Luke 15? He leaves the 99 because that one matters. You matter. Every single one of us matters. And so here's how I want you to understand this moment. I want you to understand that what God is calling us to is going to cost you. It's going to cost you. And I don't like, I know you don't like hearing that. But you need to. Because it's going to cost you courage. It's going to cost you faith. It might even cost you relationships. But could I just remind us that whatever it costs us is nothing in comparison to what it cost him to save you. Nothing. Jesus says, I glorify the Father and it costs my life. And he says, now you could glorify the Father empowered by me. It's going to cost you. And so we're going to close our service this way as we close our series. You thought you were coming to a service, but you actually came to a commissioning service. You know what a commissioning service is? It's where we have missionaries come up on stage and we pray for them and we commission them and we send them. And instead of having some of us come on stage, I'm going to, in a moment, ask you if the Spirit has led you with this longing for satisfaction. If the Spirit has led you to want to live a sanctified life, if the Spirit has led you to be sent to your one, then in a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand to receive a prayer and an anointing so that we would be sent as an army of God, costing giving in the name of Jesus because he has given everything to us. And, and, and yet I say in a moment because I don't expect all of us to stand because some of us are not ready to be commissioned. 
And I'm going to say that's okay. But I'm going to just invite those people who really feel like the Lord has called me. I think God's talking to me. And it's the Spirit of God. Then I want you to take a bold position to just stand. Stand for God. God is asking you. He's raising up a generation to actually send out into the world. So in all of our campuses, on the count of three, would you all stand up if you want to be commissioned to be prayed for and anointed? All right? One, two, three. Would you stand all together, wherever you are? Oh. In Hayward, people are standing. They're still standing now. Hundreds upon hundreds of people standing to say, Lord, send me. I want to be used by you. I know it's going to be a cost, but I want to be sanctified. I want to be satisfied. I want to be sent. This is the New Testament church. And for those of you who are sitting, man, thank you for even honoring my request. But would you even pray for these people that are standing today? Because we're going to send them into the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the spirit that lives in every single one of these people that have stood. Men and women, children, boys and girls, saying you are worth it. That our life is surrendering to you. We're saying, command us. Here am I. Send me even when I'm scared, even when I'm worried, and we don't even know how we're going to do it. But in faith, we stand because we know that in standing, there is joy and satisfaction that we currently don't have. Would you send us to your mission? That there's a call to sanctification, to holiness that we want to enter into and say, will you change my life? Will you help me make these decisions empowered by the Holy Spirit? And Lord, will you lay an anointing over every single person here and in Hayward and all of our homes that have stood, that you see and you know by name. And you are so proud because this is why you have sent your son Jesus to not only redeem us, but to redeem the mission that you have for us. So may greater work be done in this generation than even in the first century because the people of God has moved from a consumer to a missionary for your glory, for your exaltation alone. So will you anoint these people? Father, will you help them to not forget this moment where you called upon your people and they heard your name and they responded in truth saying, you are our God. And we long for the rest of the world to know this grace that we receive in, so, in such fullness. We love you and we want to surrender our lives to you. Call us and send us and anoint these people, I pray, in the matchless name of our King, our Savior, who was sent for us, so now is sending us. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's give him praise.